Hello, and welcome to the Radical History Podcast. Today's episode, The Todpuddle Martyrs, Part 2. When we last left off, the six Dorchester labourers had just been convicted of taking unlawful oaths and sentenced to seven years' transportation in Australia. While George Lovelace went to hospital to recover from a sudden bout of illness, the five others, James Lovelace, James Bryan, James Hammett, Thomas Stanfield and John Stanfield, were placed aboard the convict ship Surrey and taken off to begin their long and arduous journey on March 27th, 1834. John Stanfield recounted the conditions aboard the Surrey. Quote, I then began to feel the misery of transportation, confined down with the most degraded and wretched criminals, each man having to contend with his fellow or be trodden underfoot. The rations, which were served out daily, were of the worst quality, and very deficient in quality, owing to the peculations indulged in by those officers whose duty it is to attend to that department. In addition to this, the crowded state of the vessel, rendering it impossible for the prisoners to lie down at full length, the noxious state of the atmosphere, and the badness and saltiness of the provisions, induced disease and suffering, which it is impossible to describe. End quote. Stanfield was, in many respects, actually lucky compared to other convicts who made that same journey. The Surrey was indeed overcrowded, carrying 260 passengers instead of the usual 200, but, unlike other convict ships, this one was relatively free of disease, with only a small outbreak of diarrhoea and two cases of scurvy occurring on the passage to Australia. Indeed, the ship's surgeon proudly noted the absence of any death or serious sicknesses. Evidently, scurvy was considered a fairly minor ailment. The voyage lasted some 111 days before the ship finally reached Sydney Harbour. On the 4th of September 1834, the convicts were allowed to set foot on land, where they would soon discover for themselves just how brutal life in the penal colonies could be. The prisoners were, like most transported convicts, rented out by the colonial authorities to private individuals for whom they would work. James Bryan was sent to a farm near Hunter's River in New South Wales. He was given some clothes, a shilling and some blankets, all of which were stolen on his journey to his new workplace. When he finally arrived at the farm, starving and exhausted, his new master accused him of lying, refused to provide any replacements for his stolen goods, and for the first six months he had to work at back-breaking labour without bedding or shoes. Indeed, James Bryan seemed to be cursed with bad luck all throughout his stay in Australia. He seems to have earned the enmity of a local magistrate, and was very nearly sent to the notorious Norfolk Island, widely regarded as the worst of all the Australian penal colonies. Luckily, unfavourable winds forced the boat to return to the town of Newcastle, New South Wales, and, from there, he was eventually able to join James Lovelace, who was living and working on a farm in the province. Thomas Stanfield, the eldest prisoner, also had a gruelling experience, largely due to poor health. He was separated from his son soon after arriving in the colony, and by the time John was finally able to visit his father, who was working on a neighbouring farm in New South Wales, he found him, quote, a dreadful spectacle, covered in sores from head to foot, and weak and helpless as a child. While Thomas was able to remain with his father thereafter, the harsh conditions continued to undermine the older man's health, and he was again stricken by an illness that left him incapacitated for two months. 
Experiences of Hamas we know little, except that he later remarked that he had been treated like a slave. George Lovelace arrived some time after the other men, aboard the James Metcalf. Unlike the other prisoners who had gone to New South Wales, George Lovelace was instead sent to Van Diemen's Land, modern-day Tasmania. He briefly worked in a chain gang engaged in road building, but, luckily for him, he was quickly transferred to a government farm, where the work was demanding, though not backbreaking, and he didn't have to suffer the indignity of being chained to a group of prisoners. Whatever their own sufferings, however, the first concern of all the men were their families, who had been left behind in Tallpuddle. In a particularly vindictive move, James Frampton had refused to allow the wives and children of the transported men to receive parish relief, leaving them with little to no means of subsistence in the absence of their fathers and brothers. Meanwhile, back in England, Frampton, Melbourne and other opponents of trade unionism must have felt a profound sense of relief and satisfaction. As planned, the trial and sentencing had proceeded quickly and without complications. As it turned out, however, they had underestimated the organisation and determination of the working classes and their allies. Last episode, I briefly mentioned the Grand National Consolidated Trades Union, GNCTU, who had sent two delegates to assist Lovelace and the other labourers in forming their own union. The organisation was essentially an early attempt at a trade union congress. It had been founded in 1833 by Robert Owen, the industrialist, reformer and socialist theorist, a fascinating figure who will likely receive his own episode in the future. Under the energetic leadership of Owen, the GNCTU quickly expanded until it possessed a membership of half a million and, though centred in London, had affiliates as far afield as Dundee and Belfast. It was, at least partly, upper-class paranoia about the growth of Owen's new union of trades that had informed Lord Melbourne's desire to set an example in the case of the Talpuddle Martyrs. Instead, the conviction created a cause celebre for the GNCTU, which could now be mobilised towards a distinct, clear and achievable goal. Justice for the Dorchester labourers. To that end, the Grand National began to campaign for the release of the Talpuddle Martyrs, organising petitions, raising funds and hosting public meetings. Even the Northern Trade Unions that had previously remained aloof from the GNCTU sent delegates to coordinate actions geared towards the release of the labourers. On March 24th, 1834, Robert Owen called a meeting of the Grand National, attended by 10,000 people, at which a Dorchester committee was inaugurated to coordinate the agitation. The committee set about raising money to support the families of the transported men. The money raised was vast, and there was barely enough ink to satisfy those who wished to sign the numerous petitions that were circulating throughout the country. What had begun as a dispute over wages in a small town in Dorset had now become a national cause which united the entire labour movement behind it. The obvious injustice of the sentence rallied many in Parliament to the cause of the Dorchester labourers. The Radical MP Joseph Hume spoke against the exile of the six men in Parliament, as did the future Chartist leader and MP for Cork, Fergus O'Connor, again a man who will likely be getting his own episode in the future. 
even unlikely allies, not previously associated with either radicalism or trade unionism, threw their weight behind the cause, motivated by indignation at the injustice of the sentence. Daniel O'Connell, the Irish MP best known for his championing of Catholic emancipation, joined the chorus of voices condemning the sentence, despite his previous opposition to trade unions. Even many Tory and Whig MPs, who agreed with the guilty verdict, felt that the sentence had been far too harsh and began to call for it to be mitigated. The culmination of this initial campaign was a huge demonstration on the 21st of April 1834 in London. Trade union sources claimed that 100,000 attended, while the Times claimed 30,000. Either way, by the standards of the day, it was an enormous turnout. Lord Melbourne was no doubt shocked by the size of the procession that arrived at his office, though he refused to meet with the delegation or accept their petition, which contained a quarter of a million signatures. Throughout the following year, the agitation continued at a steady pace, though the government remained steadfast in ignoring it. In early 1835, however, an election was called. Although the Whig government retained power, they did so on the basis of an alliance with the Radicals and with Daniel O'Connell's repeal movement. As we have seen, both O'Connell and the Radicals were sympathetic to the Tallpuddle Martyrs, so Whig reliance on these new allies boded well for the men. After the election, Melbourne became Prime Minister and was replaced as Home Secretary by Lord John Russell. Russell took a less uncompromising stance towards the case and, in June 1835, the new Home Secretary offered to approach the King with a proposal that a pardon would be granted to all of the men on condition that they remained in Australia, with James Bryan, James Hammett and John and Thomas Stanfield to receive a full pardon, including the right to return to England after two years. In the case of James and George Lovelace, widely regarded as the ringleaders, Russell was less willing to make concessions. They could receive pardons, but would not be allowed to return to England. Though this was clearly a step forward, it still didn't go far enough. In particular, the recently elected Thomas Wakeley, who had emerged as the most consistent and vigorous champion of the labourers, refused to settle for anything less than a full pardon, responding to Russell's offer by defending the character of the two Lovelaces. Quote, was it proved in the court that any of the men had been guilty of threatening their fellow labourers, or in any degree given offence to their neighbours? He had evidence on the contrary, that six better labourers and more honest men did not exist in the kingdom. They were most exemplary persons, and the two men, whom the noble lord was to visit with the last sting of the law's severity, those men had never been anything during their lives but common labourers, had, by dint of study and application, become so qualified in mental capacity as to be enabled to give lectures in the neighbourhood to their fellow labourers and had even been received into the Wesleyan Conference as preachers. It was admitted, in fact, by all persons acquainted with their characters that six more honest, peaceable and industrious men were not to be found in the county of Dorset. Who, then, could describe the cruelty of the sentence passed on these meritorious men? He blushed for the character of his country, while he related the particulars of such a barbarous transaction. Undaunted by Russell's refusal, Wakeley continued to push for the unconditional release of all six prisoners as agitation continued outside Westminster. Finally, in early March 1836, Russell made another concession by offering to commute the sentence of George and James Lovelace. 
The Home Secretary was somewhat sympathetic to the cause of the labourers, but was continually undermined by Prime Minister Melbourne, who remained utterly opposed to a further commutation. Finally, under pressure from his conscience, the constant campaigning for the release of the prisoners, and the consistent demands of MPs like Wakeley, Russell, on 14th of March 1836, convinced the King to offer all six men a full pardon. More than two years after they had set off aboard convict ships from Portsmouth, the tall puddle martyrs had finally been vindicated. At the time of the pardon, George Lovelace was a free man living in Tasmania, though forbidden from leaving the colony. It wasn't until September 1836 that he learned of his own exoneration, having received a copy of a British newspaper in Hobart Town. He was summoned to the governor, who confirmed the pardon, and having been impressed by Lovelace's intelligence and honesty, offered him free passage back to England. After some minor complications, Lovelace boarded the Evelyn in late January 1837, arriving back in Britain in June, three years after he had first left. John and Thomas Stanfield, at the time of the pardon, were working at a sheep station near the city of Maitland when they received the good news from Lovelace that they would be able to return to England as free men. In January 1837, Lovelace wrote to inform them that he was about to set sail for England and included instructions for obtaining passage home. Unfortunately, their then-employer went out of his way to prevent their departure. It wasn't until September 1837 that John and Thomas Stanfield were finally able to leave the colony, returning to England in April 1838 after an absence of four years. James Lovelace, who was working on a farm near Sydney, was also delayed by his employer, but eventually succeeded in boarding a ship for England around the same time as the Stanfields, accompanied by James Bryan, who was also in the Sydney area. As for James Hammett, the only one of the martyrs who did not write down his experiences, we know relatively little. Unlike the other men, he had been sent into the vast Australian interior and had been out of contact with the other men. In fact, the unfortunate Hammett didn't return to England until a full year after Bryan, Lovelace and the Stanfields. The success of the trade union movement and sympathetic radicals in overturning the conviction of the Talpuddle Martyrs was a significant moment in the history of British labour. The combination of petitioning, grassroots organising and public demonstrations that had been so crucial in bringing home the men to Talpuddle would provide a template for the Chartist movement that began later in the decade. Moreover, while trade unions would continue to face legal persecution in the future, the campaign proved to men like Lord Melbourne and James Frampton that attempts to cripple labour organising by such methods would not go unchallenged. Indeed, the significance of the episodes is reflected by the fact that the Trade Union Congress continues to organise an annual festival in Talpuddle in commemoration of the martyrs. There are also several streets and one Tasmanian vineyard named in their honour. The martyrs also continue to inspire musicians, artists and writers. Speaking of which... If you enjoyed the story of the Martyrs, I would highly recommend Comrades, Bill Douglas's strange, epic and beautiful film adaptation of the story. What about the Martyrs themselves? Luckily for the now exonerated convicts, the Dorchester Committee, whose initial fundraising efforts to support the families back in Dorset had received a response beyond their wildest dreams, now found themselves with an enormous surplus and no more campaigning on which to spend it. For this reason, the committee decided to lease farms in Essex, which were then presented to the grateful Talpuddle men, who continued their political activity, becoming active in the local Chartist movement. When the farm leases expired, 
the Stansfields, Lovelaces and James Bryan decide to emigrate to Canada, where they spent the rest of their lives. James Hammett, either because of homesickness or because he didn't enjoy the life of a farmer, had already moved back to Talpuddle, becoming a builder. He would remain in his hometown until he lost his sight many years later. Unwilling to become a burden to his family, he chose to spend his final days in a Dorchester workhouse where he died in 1891. It was a strange, obscure death for someone who had once been one of the most famous men in England, celebrated by the poor and detested by the rich. That's all for today. Next week, we will be discussing the origins of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, and the beginnings of their insurgency against the Turkish government. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on iTunes. You can follow us at History Radical on Twitter, or leave us an email at radicalhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, goodbye.